You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. It's always fun when we get to talk about how cutting-edge technology can reshape the historical narrative. So we're excited today to introduce Kirsten Moffitt, who is the first on-staff materials analyst at the Foundation's new Conservation Analytical Laboratory. Kirsten, thank you for being here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I feel like I just said a whole mouthful of words, and I'm not <laughs> even sure what they mean. Tell me about the Conservation Analytical Laboratory. The Conservation Laboratory that uh, we just opened up is the newest lab in our conservation department. So conservation is the profession dedicated to the preservation and treatment of cultural artifacts. So as you know, we have a great deal of cultural artifacts here in our collection, and that can include um, archeological materials, architectural sites, all of the historic buildings that we have in the historic area, and our extensive museum collection. So the analytical laboratory is a new dedicated space that houses a suite of instrumental um, techniques that we can use to analyze the materials that we have in our collection. Um, I carry out analysis for the conservators, curators, and the architectural historians at the foundation. And um, these projects can, can all vary depending on the, the goal of the analysis. So often the, the curators are interested in having me analyze an object to understand the materials that were used to make that object. That can shed very helpful light on the provenance of an object, where, when, and how it was made. And it can also answer some questions about um, the authenticity of the object or the history of the restoration of that object. Um, because certain um, parts of an object can visually look the same, but chemically they can be very different. And I can actually pick this up using the instruments that we have in our lab. Um, a lot of the conservators uh, come to the analytical laboratory because they need to look more closely also at the materials used to make an object that they, that they might be treating. So knowing what an object is actually made of can help them design um, an appropriate conservation treatment um, for that object to minimize the damage that could occur possibly during a treatment, um, but it also saves them time, um, a lot of guesswork in trying to design that treatment. Um, another reason why I might work with the conservators as well is to um, look at restoration materials. A lot of times conservators need to remove previous restorations and that could include anything from perhaps a yellowed varnish on a painting or an adhesive on a ceramic that's no longer functional. So they can send me very, very tiny samples from an object. These samples can actually be the size of 10 micrometers. I mean, this is the size of a speck of dust. You can barely see it. Um, the average width of a human hair is 80 micrometers. So that just gives you a sense of how small these samples are um, that we're dealing with. And, um, and then we can learn a great deal of information from these very, very tiny, tiny samples. Um, the reason why the samples are so small is because when we're uh, working in the conservation department, um, we're charged with taking care of these artifacts and we don't ever want to remove any material that might be original. So um, we want to avoid sampling whenever possible and actually some of the techniques that I have in the lab are completely non-destructive. If we do need to take a sample, that sample can actually be very, very small. So very minimally invasive, causing you know little to no damage to the object. We've talked a lot about what you're able to discover. Tell me about the tools that you're using. They're unusual in a museum setting, or maybe they're unexpected. Well, actually, um, there are a 
a number of museums um, that do have analytical laboratories, but, but not many. So it's really fantastic that we've been able to set up our own lab here at Colonial Williamsburg. We have a number of instruments that we actually use uh, different types of energy um, and to see how that energy interacts with the materials to learn more about our objects. Um, so what's an example of that for yeah, somebody who's not a scientist? Yeah, um, one of the instruments that we have in the laboratory is a handheld XRF. So XRF stands for X-ray fluorescence spectroscopy. This instrument actually looks like a Star Trek ray gun. It's about the, the size and shape of a hairdryer. It's completely portable, so we can take it out of the lab. We could bring it anywhere in the foundation to use it. Um, and what it does is it actually emits X-rays that can then interact with an object, and it excites the elements that are within that object. And the elements in, in the object actually, when they get excited, they emit their own x-rays, which are picked up by the XRF. We have a laptop that's loaded up with analytical software. And so in live time, when I'm pointing that handheld XRF at, say, a, a silver teapot, the laptop will actually show me uh, what's called a, a spectrum. And I'll see peaks on that spectrum that correspond to the x-ray energies that are coming out of the object. So for instance, any almost any element on the periodic table that's above magnesium, we can identify with this technique. So if I'm looking at a silver object, I'll see peaks on that spectrum that correspond to the energy levels for silver. I also see might see little peaks for copper because sterling silver contains um, certain alloys of silver and copper. Um, now, silvers that are made before the mid-19th century contain trace elements of lead, gold, and sometimes arsenic. So um, by using this tiny little, uh, this little handheld device and pointing it at a silver object, I can see peaks for silver, copper, and if I'm seeing peaks for lead, gold, and arsenic, then I can go back to the curator and say, this, um, the spectrum that I'm seeing from this object uh, does, does confirm that this object would be a, a colonial era piece of silver. That is fascinating. Yeah, and of course, if those peaks are absent, that also tells us, okay, something's going on here. Um, the handle on this teapot may not be original to the rest of the object. Um, and because it's handheld, um, the great thing about it is we can, we can take it out of the lab, we could bring it into the museum where objects might be too large or too delicate to be moved. We can actually um, point it to a painting so that we can get readings from the pigments in the painting. So if we were to see peaks for mercury, we know that a, a pigment called vermilion was used. If we see peaks for copper, we know that a copper-based pigment called verdigris was used, possibly. So um, there's really a lot of information we can get on this totally handheld device, and it's completely non-destructive. So it's a really wonderful technique for looking at our, our objects. We can look at glass, uh, ceramics, and just a whole wealth of, of objects in our collection and we can get the data very fast. How are these and other tools changing the way that we're able to look at and understand the objects in our collection, be they metals, textiles, uh, wood, furniture? Um, well, I think the, the fact that now this technology is actually um, this, this getting to be so small and so portable, it just makes it a much more accessible technique um, and one that's uh, much more uh, easy to use um, because I just want to note that even you know 20 years ago uh, uh, an XRF would have taken up an entire 
room almost. I mean, it was actually quite a large instrument, um, and you had to position the object underneath the instrument and leave the room to, to carry out the analysis. Now you can actually uh, pick up the instrument and, and take it wherever you need to. So we can use it on, on so many objects in the collection, and it, and it is actually quite quite easy to use, so I work with um, interns. I can train them on how to use the, the instrument, and a number of our conservators also know how to use it. So if they need to, they can you know, sign it out of the lab and take it wherever they need to go. Another one of the instruments that we have in the lab is an FTIR microscope. So FTIR stands for Fourier Transform Infrared Spectroscopy. This is actually um, a technique that we use to um, irradiate the sample with an infrared light, and we can and that also will generate a spectrum. And the infrared light can excite certain um, molecular vibrations within the molecules in a sample. And from that information where certain organic uh, functional groups might vibrate, that generates little peaks on, on a spectrum, which is a spectrum similar to what we would have gotten for XRF. Um, but the spectrum tells us the, the frequencies at which the, um, these vibrations occur. And that helps us understand how the the, the actual you know, physical structure of the molecules in, in the material. So things like um, carbon-hydrogen bonds or carbonate bonds, um, we'll actually see peaks that correspond to these functional groups and that helps us understand what the molecular structure of the material is, but that helps us understand what it actually is. We can um, use this to look at organic materials like varnishes, plastics, adhesives, um, and so Using the FTIR along with the XRF, they're really wonderful complementary techniques. So the XRF might be able to tell us something is, for instance, contains calcium, while the FTIR can tell us it contains a carbonate. So by putting those two techniques together, we can understand the material is calcium carbonate and it's, it's chalk. So, um, so these two techniques, just having these two techniques alone in the lab can give us a really wonderful amount of information about an object. And the FTIR does require a sample, but uh, extremely, extremely small, um, you know, around 100 to 10 microns. And, um, and then a, another instrument that we have in the lab is a, is a high-powered fluorescence microscope. So this is a microscope that you typically see in, in a biological laboratory, maybe in a university. But um, I use it for uh, paint analysis. So I carry out a lot of um, analysis looking at the paint layers, for instance, in our historic structures. And what I can do is collect very tiny paint, flakes of paint while I'm on site somewhere, um, and I can essentially cut the flakes in half, set them on their sides, and look at them under this microscope to see their, their cross-section, essentially the, um, the sequence of layers that have been applied over time. So you'll see the, the wood and the first layer of paint that would have been applied in the 18th century. And sometimes our, our houses have up to 25 to even you know 30 layers of paint on them, but by looking at the cross section, we can see the layers of paint that have been applied over time. And using this this high-powered microscope, we can I can look at the the not only the colors that might have been originally applied, but the um, the distribution of pigments, the thickness of the layers, the presence or absence of of varnishes, and I can also use that microscope to pull tiny fibers from, say, a textile or even a, a paper object and examine those fibers and, and identify them as cotton or, or wool or silk. I can also use that microscope to look at pigments, um, just 
the microscope has a magnification that goes all the way up to 1,000 times. So I can actually look at individual pigment particles um, to and look at their uh, more their their physical characteristics to identify them. I also want to note that almost all of the instruments in our lab were generously uh, provided by donations from Clint and Mary Gilliland of Menlo Park, California, and um, they provided the money that allowed us to to purchase this suite of instruments. So with this high-powered microscope, the FTIR, and the handheld XRF, we really have a, a wonderful foundation of instrumentation that we can use to f really answer almost any question that we have about the artifacts in our collection. It is so fascinating to hear you describe this area of conservation, which I never even imagined existed. A lot of people don't. <laughs> We're so glad to be able to um, share the discoveries that you're able to make in this new lab. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We're always glad to hear your feedback. Send us an email at podcast.history.org.